Good morning. Good morning. My name is David, and I am an assisting priest here at Incarnation. Today is the Sunday after the feast day of the presentation of the Lord in the temple. And traditionally, this is the Sunday when the church blesses its candles for liturgical use during the rest of the year. Hence the other name for the day, Candlemas, the Candle Mass. In keeping with that tradition, we will be blessed, well, we have already blessed our candles here this morning, and the presentation of the Lord fits within the broader season of Epiphany. Now, you may be thinking, especially for the kids who are in Atrium, I thought we were in ordinary time, um, which is between Epiphany and Lent, and you would be correct, but if you look at the church calendar, the Sundays in this period are all labeled the nth Sunday after Epiphany, so this is more like ordinary-ish time. The season of Epiphany retraces events in the life of Jesus Christ and draws us into it. It follows a certain logic. If Christmas celebrates the birth of Christ and Easter celebrates his resurrection from the dead, then what naturally falls between those times is Jesus' life. That's what Epiphany season is about. And like the feast day of Epiphany proper, the season as a whole focuses on manifesting the glory of the Lord Jesus. Hence it begins with the great light that the Magi followed to the one who is the light of the world. And it ends with the feast of transfiguration. That's when Jesus was transformed before the eyes of his closest disciples and his garments shone as a great light. So if you're sensing a common theme here, a light motif, if you will, then you are getting at the main idea of this liturgical season. I might just end there. No. <laughs> it emphasizes that the greatest revelation of God to humanity is in his son, Jesus Christ. In scripture and tradition, light is also closely associated with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one who illumines our hearts so that we may see the Lord with the eyes of faith. Hence, one of the earliest synonyms for baptism found as early as the letter to the Hebrews, is photismos, or enlightenment. Baptism is the sign and seal of the inner transformation or illumination brought about by the Spirit. So you may be asking, okay, with all this light imagery, why the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord? And the answer is, why not? <laughs> um, I guess I could do a little bit better. In the seventh century, Pope Sergius I instituted this grand procession with candles on this feast day, and ever since then, there's this, been this strong association between the Feast of the Presentation and the lighting of candles. From that point forward, we have Candlemas. But what is its significance in the life of Christ, and what does it mean for us to be drawn into it? The presentation of the Lord in the temple signifies, among other things, that Jesus fulfills the law of the Lord in its entirety. It marks a pivotal point in Israel's history, and perhaps unexpectedly for them at the time, Jesus is presented as the universal savior, which is to say, the light of Christ shines not just for one nation only, but for the whole world. First, Jesus is presented in the temple because the law of Moses obliged his Jewish parents to do so. This was necessary because he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. In ancient Israel, every firstborn male offspring was considered to belong to God in a special way. 
When it came to livestock, that meant the firstborn male goat or bull, etc., was to be offered as a sacrifice to the Lord. For firstborn male children, the law prescribed a sacrifice be made on behalf of the child. Thus, even when he is a young child, we see that Jesus' life is going by the book. This also immediately followed his circumcision of his officially being inducted into the covenant between God and his people. Like any Jewish person living at that time, particularly living in the land of Israel, Jesus' life was deeply connected to the temple in Jerusalem. And indeed, when he came of age and began to teach, he had quite a lot to say about the temple. And although he had strong criticisms about its corrupt administration, we would be mistaken to say that Jesus thought the temple was a bad thing in and of itself. On the contrary, the law itself dictates that the people of Israel must worship there in Jerusalem. And once built, it was considered the locus of God's presence on earth. The psalm we read today, Psalm 84, speaks of the joy of being in God's house. And it, when that psalm is written, that's referring to a specific place. It's easy to forget when in the church we consider God's house to be anywhere we are. But at the time, that referred to a certain, you could say, zip code. It was Mount Zion in Israel. Uh, really interestingly, there's a text in Ezekiel that even calls the temple in Jerusalem the navel of the world. So that gives you an idea of its symbolic importance. It is central. It is where life flows to the world from God. Now, Jesus foretold its destruction, and we are told elsewhere that Jesus is the great final high priest and sacrifice that puts the end to all sacrifices in the temple. And in a very indirect way, you could even say Simeon hints in that direction of Jesus' own sacrifice. In Luke 2, however, there's no tension between the Messiah and the temple, which is the main point I want to make here. In fact, the promised child is welcomed there with open arms and tears of joy. The image here is of a seamless transition. In this moment, the temple was as it was always meant to be. And that brings us to our second point. Jesus' presentation in the temple is of a piece with Jesus' coming as a turning point in salvation history. The righteous and devout man named Simeon was said to be looking forward to this moment, which is here called the consolation of Israel. Now, you have to be wary when individual words in the Bible are singled out as having a super special meaning. Um, you can't derive a whole theology from a dictionary entry. Even so, the expression, consolation of Israel, deserves special attention. The word for consolation, paraclesis, is the same root word used for the Holy Spirit in John 14. The, the consoler or comforter will be with you. And for Jesus Christ in 1 John chapter 2, where it says he is our advocate before the Father. Those passages demonstrate a, a quasi-legal meaning behind the word. Yes, Paraclesis can mean consolation in the sense of comforting, but it also contains the sense of something like a legal defense. So why does that matter? It means that Simeon was awaiting not just the consolation in the sense of comfort of Israel, but its vindication. You see, the nation had in its holy writings these very lofty promises, these promises about its place in the world and its place in God's design for everything. Unique among the peoples, 
this nation was, in a very real sense, wed to God. Its relationship with God spanned many, many centuries. And God promised quite specifically that his people would occupy an appointed place under the rule of a divinely anointed dynasty, that of King David. But by the time Jesus is born, over half the nation had been wiped off the map seven centuries earlier, and the remaining portion had been under foreign occupation almost continuously for many hundreds of years. The Davidic dynasty was a thing of the past. So Israel very much needed to be vindicated. God's promises needed to be vindicated. When would this Lord of Lords act and finally make good on all of those promises? Therefore, the highlight of Simeon's life is also the highlight of Israel's life. Simeon represents the eager anticipation of God's breaking into history to make things right for his people, Israel. That's why Simeon sings that the Savior is a light for the glory of Israel. And as we will see, it was not just for Israel. That's our third point. Much to Israel's surprise, Jesus also came as a light for revelation to the Gentiles, that is, non-Jews. When you see the nations in the New Testament, the Greek word ethne can be rendered as nations, but since these, these are Jewish texts, it almost always has the sense of Gentiles. They're the Jews and the ethne. This text is saying that Jesus is a revelation to them as well. And that's a major th emphasis of the Gospel of Luke in general. Jesus is the universal savior, the scope of whose salvation is not bound by ethnic or political boundaries. Up until this point, God's relationship to humanity has been routed almost exclusively through, the, through and to the people of Israel. On occasion, we see a few non-Israelites in the Old Testament who get it. The righteous Job is one example. Ruth and Rahab would be two others. So God has made himself known to some degree or another to those outside Israel, but the law and prophets were given to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob alone. They alone were chosen among all the peoples for the privilege of bearing God's special revelation of who he is. And it's easy to take it for granted now, but we non-Jews in the church are riding Israel's coattails. It is because of the light of Christ that all the peoples of the world can enjoy that special intimate relationship with the God of the universe. Thus, by vindicating Israel, salvation comes to the whole world. Now, what is that salvation? It is simply that those who are alienated from God can be brought back into intimate contact with him by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm admittedly skipping ahead of Luke 2 here, but it brings me a lot of joy just to say it. Jesus brings us home to God. His light does not hold back from afar like a distant star or a faint beacon that we have to spend our whole lives groping for, hoping we finally make it. No, the light of Jesus has come shining brightly as the noonday sun. So finally, how can we be drawn into the life of Jesus Christ by this feast of the presentation in the temple? Which, if this is your first time hearing of it, you're, you're not alone. As it happens, the church has used the Song of Simeon as a prayer for a very long time. And I'd like to invite you to try using it and maybe incorporate it into your spiritual practices. One way to do that is found in our Book of Common Prayer. 
there's a, a precious series of prayers to say at night before bed called Compline. It comes from a practice that emerged in antiquity of Christians climbing onto their rooftops and praying at midnight in anticipation of the Lord's return. Truth be told, I made up the rooftop part, but they did pray in the middle of the night, and now you have a nice visual to go with it. Anyway, at some point, the Song of Simeon was incorporated into nightly prayer. Since it's a prayer that came at the end of a man's life, it makes sense that it was placed here in evening or night prayer to be recited at the end of one's day. Praying Simeon's song is meant to give us a small daily dose of the peace that Simeon felt. It is not a glib or shallow sense of calm either. Praying it at night, praying it night after night is meant to cultivate a sense of wholeness and completion for the day, just as Simeon felt upon seeing the Savior with his own eyes. Prayed often enough, it may just have that more profound effect, a nightly reminder that we can depart not just this day, but this life in peace, as God has promised, because by faith, our eyes have seen the Savior. Let's pray it now. Lord, you now have set your servant free to go in peace as you have promised. For these eyes of mine have seen the Savior, whom you have prepared for all the world to see, a light to enlighten the nations, and the glory of your people Israel. Amen.